what if we created a movement that was based around excitement? And the first thing I thought of was you. Well, thank you for saying so, Adam. Andrew Yang <laughs> equals excitement. This <laughs> <laughs> from the rock star. I'm your host, Adam Met, and welcome to Planet Reimagined. Throughout this season, I'll be talking to many incredible people about the multidimensional world of sustainability. Today, we're chatting with Andrew Yang. You may recognize Andrew from the campaign trail as he ran for president of the United States. You may also have heard about Universal Basic Income, or UBI, his idea to give every citizen $1,000 a month, no questions asked. In addition to this, we talk about climate, technology, movement building, food, and, of course, sustainability. A quick reminder that we're planting a tree for every person who subscribes to this podcast, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. And without further ado, here is Andrew Yang on Planet Reimagined. So a few months ago on Instagram, I saw that your wife made this incredible-looking kimchi fried rice. And so I DM'd her and asked her about the recipe— and so the first thing I want to ask you about is, does your wife's kimchi fried rice taste as good as it looks? Affirmative. It's delicious. Evelyn's <laughs> a very, very multifaceted human, uh, but she's become really strong in the kitchen and she will be thrilled that someone noticed. Hey, well, it looked amazing. So down to brass tacks, obviously everybody knows you ran for president. First question, why did you feel that your ideas would be more effective in the public sphere as opposed to implementing them from the private sector? The scale of the problem, Adam, is so massive, and I know you're focused on climate change. It's somewhat similar, where our economy is turned on more and more people who are never given them a chance. And if you look at the scale, even of the biggest philanthropists, uh, you cannot solve this problem without an energized public sector. I mean, uh, our economy is 22 trillion. Uh, you have tens of millions being left behind. And I have had the fortune or misfortune of actually spending some time in the philanthropy sector. So if you manage to get in front of a billionaire and say, hey, I've got this great idea, we should just give people money. <laughs> and, uh, and then they were like, interesting. And they like you and they like it. They're not going to like give you a billion dollar check. <laughs> Then they'd have zero. Instead, you're very, very lucky to, to get, you know, a few hundred thousand in most cases. So if you're going to eradicate and abolish poverty and keep our society whole and strong, you need the government to take a, a leadership role. And so I ran for president because I wanted to galvanize energy around a vision that I thought was inevitable. So you might be tired of this question but I don't think there's anybody left in the world who knows the name Andrew Yang and doesn't know what universal basic income is. So that's a big success from your perspective. But for everyone who's listening, would you mind giving just a very brief overview of UBI and how you feel it relates to climate change so we can kind of move into the discussion of sustainability? Of course. Universal basic income is a policy where every member of a society, let's say every citizen of a country, gets a certain amount of money to meet your basic needs. So my plan during the campaign was $1,000 a month for every American. And now I think it should be more because of COVID and the circumstances. But I think it is core to helping us evolve 
towards a more sustainable economy because so many of the activities that we're undertaking right now are carbon expensive because people need to do certain things to get by. Uh, so what do, what do I mean by that? Let's say that you're in a community where everyone has no money. Uh, so then everyone has to go out and commute to work. And then they commute to work and they're doing jobs that emit certain levels of pollutants. And then the business looks up and says, well, I could make my operations more sustainable, but I have to nickel and dime everything to try and keep my costs low so I can operate and survive. And then the people are doing the same thing where let's say that some of them look up and say, ooh, an electric car, like that, that seems amazing, but it also seems very expensive. And that's something that I'm never going to have access to. So let me just keep on driving my clunker. There are a lot of habits that people take because they really don't have any economic choice uh, and unfortunately, cheap and dirty are kind of correlated. Like there's a lot mm -hmm. of cheap, dirty stuff out there. And then if you go to businesses and say you need to clean up your packaging waste or you need to adopt more sustainable operations, they want to shoot you because they think, well, I'm barely breaking even as it is. Uh, and so how, how the heck am I going to do these things? So it's true for individuals. It's true for businesses. And it's true for economies at large. I want to ask you about UBI, but how it could be applied in places outside of the U.S., because sustainable development is a global issue, and there are a lot of global solutions, but in developing countries and countries whose economies are not as big as the U.S., how would you apply UBI in those places? A lot of the studies around cash grants and income have actually been in the developing world. And the impact has been staggering very, very consistently, where in the developing world, if you get money into people's hands, you see girls going to school and staying in school at higher levels. Uh, you see business formation among women in particular rise tremendously. And there are many developing countries that are looking at this and saying, we should go to cash for people instead of building a new program because it's efficient, it's direct, people can solve their own problems. And there are countries like India that are looking at implementing universal basic income for this reason. In some ways, it's even more powerful in the developing world because there, there's so much poverty that if you put a little bit of money into people's hands, it's a game changer and it, it can improve their approach to sustainability quite quickly. Amazing. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about the interdisciplinary nature of sustainability. We talk about how education relates to poverty, relates to health, gender equality. UBI, and you sort of touched on this, is intersectional as well. You feel that UBI addresses all of these, correct? I don't think we can get where we need to go in terms of the environment and sustainability without universal basic income or something similar to it. And one mm -hmm. of the things I proposed is that I believe in a world of universal basic income, there'd be a massive growth in uh, minimalism. Because imagine if you were getting a certain amount of money and you thought, hmm, like if I like play it close, I might be able to go to a cabin in the woods and just work on the screenplay or a novel or like do, do the things instead of, uh, you know, getting in my car and commuting to the job that like I, I really don't want to be doing, uh, but I have no choice but to do. I think that there there'd be a real evolution in terms of our awareness of the environment and making good policy choices. Because right now in the United States of America, if we say 
um, hey, we need to move towards solar and, and wind and renewable energy as quickly as possible. The argument on the other side is like, you're going to kill jobs. You know, like, right. the, like, it's, like a job, it's like a job destroyer. And in America, like that argument wins over a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. So if you disentangle the ability to live and survive and prosper with having a particular type of job or income, it's a precursor to be able to make the kind of changes we need and also getting the boot off of people's throats. One of the things I said around the trail, Adam, was that if you're one of the 78% of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck pre-pandemic and you know you can't afford a four or $500 bill and someone comes to you and says, you know, we need to worry about climate change, a very natural reaction is to say, I can't pay next month's rent. You know, like I can't worry about a problem as big as that. And then the human mind then says like, oh, it must not be a big problem anyway. Maybe this person's just trying to scare me. So right. you, you have to lift the air of scarcity that pervades American thought and replace it with a level of abundance that enables them to think clearly and then respond to reason. Yeah. I want to talk about responsibility because I talk to businesses, I talk to individuals, I talk to the civil society sector, and everyone's kind of pushing the blame of responsibility onto other people. And so for building sustainably and specifically sustainable development, where do you feel the responsibility lies, specifically in America? In America, our public sector has been asleep at the switch. Um, so the, the, the reality is that people respond to incentives. And so if you mm-hmm. want people to develop in a sustainable way, then you have to make it more cost effective for them to develop that way than the other way. That I, I think is relatively common sense. Yeah. Um, and, but it's one thing that I despair about in the United States is that we berate people for doing one thing, but then we make it in their interest to do that thing. And yeah. there, there, and there is no way to set the rules of the road except through the public sector. It's one reason mm-hmm. why I, I ran for president. And Adam, I'm really passionate about the set of changes because I'm, I'm seeing like the daisy chain. And I love the fact that you are opening up this idea that universal basic income and sustainability are tied together because they 100% are. And one of the big questions then is if you look up and say, okay, let's say a majority of American citizens think climate change is a massive problem, we should do something about it why are we not doing anything about it? And then the, the problem is that we have this giant corporate layer of interests and lobbyists who are trying to protect industries and jobs. And then you have the legislators and the legislators just respond to the corporate interests and aren't responding to the vast majority of human beings who are like, hey, we should probably do something about this problem that's going to jeopardize all of us and leave the planet uninhabitable over time and be like a species-wide catastrophe. And I spent the last number of years making the case about universal basic income, but there are, as you know, millions of people who've been spending years making the case about climate change. And, and then you think like, why is it not happening? And it's because of this, this layer uh, that, that sort of, sort of enveloped our government. And someone said it to me yesterday, Adam, he said, in the United States of America, it's pretty easy to get nothing done. Like if, if your goal is just to stop something from happening, <laughs> like you can get that done. Like it's very hard in America to get something big and positive done because there are so many people that have the ability to impede that. Someone called it like a vetocracy. It's like everyone has the veto. And so if you try and do something, then there's some fossil fuel lobbyists being like, we're going to keep that from happening. So how do we incentivize businesses aside from taxes or a cap and trade system? What are some other ways that we can incentivize businesses to move in a more sustainable direction? 
Well, th this is one reason why universal-based income is so necessary is because ideally you'd make it in the business's interest. And I think the regulatory system is the, the most direct way to do that. And we should do that. But you can imagine a world where consumers and citizens also help move businesses in certain directions by saying, look, I'm not going to patronize you if you don't uh, make mm -hmm. these kinds of investments. But that kind of movement is very difficult if no one can pay their bills uh, because then yeah. everyone just goes towards the cheapest thing available <laughs> because it's like, well, I can't really uh, get get too concerned about cost when I'm, I'm just trying to feed the family. So those are the prongs. It's a tough thing because I've been in the business world enough to know that businesses uh, respond to incentives 99% of the time, especially if they're publicly traded, because then you have all these auditors and shareholders breathing down your neck and you can't do anything that's going to be bad for profitability. So the regulatory system can make it so that it's pro-profitability to do the right thing. Consumers could conceivably do that, but it's unrealistic uh, in the current circumstance for many, many citizens. One thing that will not work, in my opinion, is again, like berating the the CEO saying like, you know, you suck because your business isn't doing X, Y, and Z. It's correct in many cases, but the problem is really that the system rewards them for doing things that are best for their bottom line. And that bottom line does not contain the cost of climate change. If you're listening to this, hopefully you're into this idea too, but it's it's what's called a negative externality. Like a lot of these businesses are producing massive negative externalities and we all pay the price. The big challenge is to get them to internalize those externalities where if they're doing something that's bad for the environment, we figure out, look, that's really expensive for us. So you should pay that. And then, and then they say, oh, I don't like paying it. So this really is government's job to help them internalize the cost of their operations. So I want to move a little bit into the individual space and individual responsibility. So for the last, you know, six months, I've been thinking a lot about how social movements are built. And the Black Lives Matter movement did a great job of building out of anger and fear. And anger and fear are incredible motivators, but not all the time. And climate, historically, the movement itself has been built out of fear of the future. Greta Thunberg and Al Gore and AOC and a lot of other people have said, look, we're going to be underwater. We are going to have island nations that no longer exist. And so I was thinking, okay, what if we took a different approach to the climate movement? What if we looked at the way the music industry or the sports industry or the fashion industry create excitement for people? What if we created a movement that was based around excitement? And the first thing I thought of was you, because you built your entire campaign around excitement as opposed to anger or fear of something. Well, thank you for saying so, Adam. Andrew Yang <laughs> equals excitement. <laughs> <laughs> this from the rock star. You know, I love that framing because of what I just said about that, you know, struggling single mom where you go to her and say, hey, climate change. And she's like, oh, I can't think about yeah. that. You know, I've, I've got to keep the roof over the head. So building it around excitement, I think is something we need to invest a lot of energy in. And one of the more successful, and obviously in, on, on some levels, people don't like it, but I think Tesla is a very exciting brand in the sense that it feels like the future, it's electric, it's very, very low emission. And that might be one of their biggest uh, services to us all is they made electric cars cool. Pre-Tesla, they were like these weird golf carts and you <laughs> find a charging station. People weren't excited about uh, the electric car value prop. Um, but then Tesla made it sexy 
and futuristic and sleek and like kind of a high status thing. It's exciting. I mean, certainly when I drove a Tesla for the first time, it was fun and it felt like you were in like a Jetsons or a science fiction type Mm -hmm. setting. Uh, So if we can do that with other consumer actions towards sustainability, that would be an enormous leap forward. And I agree that fear has its limits. Like if you're a normal person struggling and someone comes uh, and says like, hey, you need to work on climate change. Like I might even agree with you, but then it's like, well, like what can I do? Okay. I'll, like I'll recycle a little more and I'll like do a couple things here and there. And then you know, like, it's a massive collective action problem. So I love the idea of imbuing excitement around sustainable behaviors. Yeah. It's funny in the music industry, you know, we put out music and that's something for people to listen to. And it's also a driver to get people to the shows. So I've been kind of brainstorming how we can do this with the climate movement, that thing to get people excited, but also what are we driving them to? What are these larger actions? And for me, like you said earlier, it's all about the policy change. So let's get them excited through those small individual group actions they can take and then use that and leverage it to make larger policy and corporate changes. Well, I'm going to make a pitch right now, um, which is why the heck is it if a majority of us know that climate change is a massive problem, our government does not respond adequately. And it's because the corporate interests and lobbyists have a stranglehold in our government and our voices are muted. It's like our legislators Mm -hmm. can barely hear us through the miasma of money. So that is what we have to change. I am now all in on democracy reform, which is Mm -hmm. like, imagine a society where every voter had $100 a year, used or loser, that you could give to any candidate. And then if I get 10,000 people behind me, it's a million dollars. I get a million behind me, it's 100 million. And then all of a sudden, when the oil lobby comes and says, I've got a $100,000 check for you, you'd be like, screw you, I don't care about you and that. Like, I've got the people, I've got this. Uh, You know, you can unify the people and the money. Um, So matching donor contributions is a step in the right direction. But even then, it's hard to get a normal person to give you 20 bucks in just about any circumstance. And so even if let's say a matching funds where it's like, oh, if you give that candidate 20, like the the state will give them 20, that's an improvement over nothing. But if you had a hundred free dollars that you could use to express your preference, that unlocks uh, these legislators from having to serve the corporate interest to the extent that they are. Um, So you don't think about democracy reform as climate change activism or sustainability, but I'm convinced that it is because Mm -hmm. our legislators are also creatures of incentives. And what happens is they get in there and then they go to the cubicle farm and just dial for dollars. And someone told me this, uh, Lawrence Lessig, who's a Harvard professor, he said that a legislator told him that the only way he feels like he gets anything done is when he goes and dials for dollars Uh, because then he can raise a certain amount of money over a certain number of hours. And it feels like he actually at least accomplished something. Whereas in legislation, they're not accomplishing much of anything. And so that is the system that we've built right now where our legislators are captive to financial interests. And that's what we have to change. So if we can reform the democracy, uh, then we can make progress on climate change, on universal basic income, on things that the people actually agree on right now that our legislators can't seem to get done. I'm such a big fan of localizing efforts as much as possible and figuring out how much can be done on the city level or the state level, even the the town level. So a hypothetical, if 
for some reason, you happen to find yourself as mayor of New York City in the next few years, how would you apply your climate policy ideas at the city level? The best thing to do is to demonstrate what your values are through how you're investing your resources. So New York City has a budget of, let's call it $90 billion. And so can you look around and say, okay, like of this $90 billion, like how are we spending it uh, in terms of our carbon emissions and our footprint? Are there ways that we can clean that up? You know, could you have uh, not just a handful of electric city buses, but maybe like electric NYPD cruisers, you know? <laughs> and the argument could be from the city point of view, it's like, look, this stuff will pay for itself over time. You just make an investment, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. if you think about it, NYPD cars make the most sense as electric cars because in theory, you don't have to drive them across state lines very often. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, like they're always kind of in the orbit of a charger. Uh, so, so those would be the things that you would want to do if you were in a position to actually decide how resources get allocated. And then there are policies you can make citywide that could be similar around more ambition. Uh, one thing I'm a big fan of, I don't know how, how up on the campaign you were, but bike lanes, like it's good for humans. It's good for the planet. I rode my bike everywhere. Well, so this campaigning was funny. How often do you get recognized on the street, Adam? You're a pretty famous guy. <laughs> I'm not that famous. I get recognized in airports more often, but I would say on the street, maybe once a week or so. All right. So I, got, I started getting recognized an awful lot on the streets of New York, <laughs> which was a shock to me because I, I was a, a regular Joe not that long ago. So when it started happening, it really ended up screwing up our schedule because like everywhere I went, it would like slow us down a lot. <laughs> so uh, I started riding the bike and mm. riding the bike had a number of effects. One, I have this really dorky helmet on, so I become less recognizable. Two, people don't don't look at people on bikes as much. And then three, I'm on a bike, so even when someone does recognize me, I'm like past them by the time that they're like doing anything. <laughs> uh, so I'm passionate about bikes and bike lanes and walkability. And to the extent that we can make those investments, it's good for everyone. Hmm. It's funny, I bike a lot. I feel like if we can incentivize people to use it as a mode of transportation and less as just a recreational thing, I feel like that will definitely move us in the right direction. Um, I don't know if you saw, but the mopeds were just banned in New York City. I did see that. And I think that's going to incentivize people, yeah, to move to bikes. I'm a big proponent of bike as transportation. I also Mm -hmm. had a very dorky child seat behind me because I have two children and the bike seat was primarily utilized as a way to like bring whatever I had with me, uh, with me. So for a long time uh, on the campaign, I was using my laptop, a laptop, and I would bring it with me from the office to home. And so it was like my laptop bag was in the back. And then eventually we got big and cool enough where they got me like a campaign laptop. So I didn't have to lug it, lug ride back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) Give people a glimpse. So anyway, it's not just recreation, it's transportation, uh, and we can make that happen. It'd be a huge win. I want to talk a little bit about math because you are a math guy. All of your merchandise says math on it. Make America think harder. Think harder about sustainability. (laughs) There we go. That's going to be the name of this episode. (laughs) I want to talk about quantitative results to traditionally qualitative problems and measuring something like happiness or satisfaction. How would you go about doing that using math? 
We have a lot of these measurements now, Adam, and I have a suspicion that you, like me, are a big believer in mental health and, and the fact that we need to do more. Young people in particular are facing a mental health crisis in the United States. There mm -hmm. are a number of reasons. I mean, one, it's objectively, like, things are pretty terrible. And so if you looked out and be like, oh, like, you know, maybe I should be concerned about yeah. a lot, whole lot of things. Technology has a, a role in there, too. I think that social media and smartphones at a young age are having a negative effect on teenage girls. It's been documented. And I remember when I was a very nerdy kid, uh, which was just yesterday. Now, when I was a nerdy kid, <laughs> <laughs> that I could go home and shut the door and be alone. Uh, but it feels like kids today like are never alone. And I can't imagine having that experience when I was very shy and introverted, where I felt like my classmates were, were with me. So how do you measure how people are doing in terms of their mental health. I mean, the extreme would be, are you seeing increases in suicides or depression or prescription drug use? And unfortunately, in the United States, you're seeing record highs and all those things. And so you could have that as a measurement. You could say, let's try and reduce prescription antidepressants or, well, that, that one's a bad measurement, but certainly you'd want to reduce suicides and deaths of despair. And you also can ask people how they're doing. And if it's apples to apples, you actually get a pretty good read over time. Uh, like right now, 72% of Americans think this is the worst time they've experienced ever in American history. So that is a sense as to, to where we are. But you can measure the qualitative because we have social scientists that actually have adopted measurements for lots of things like our satisfaction, our job engagement, our quality of life, our mental health and sense of well-being. And if you think that's unmeasurable, you kind of know how you're doing. You know what I mean? Like if I ask you like, hey, how are things right now? How are you? Like, you know, one thing I did uh, both in, in business and on the campaign trail is I would actually go around the table and ask people to do a battery check and be like, hey, like what percent are you right now? We, we know what percent we are. <laughs> and and, and uh, all you need as a society is just to pay more attention and ask people. And then you can get measurements for a lot of things. Hmm. That's really interesting. Since you mentioned technology, Tech was one of the biggest and still is one of the biggest contributors to the climate crisis. I mean, from the invention of the steam engine, that was the thing that essentially started the Industrial Revolution and therefore our climate crisis today. But it also could potentially be our savior. Have you come across anything really cool and exciting in the future of sustainability? There is a, a lot of exciting technology on the horizon. One of the problems, Adam, is that the investment incentives aren't necessarily there, uh, mm -hmm. where there were a couple of venture capitalists who bet big on renewable energy at a certain point, but a lot of the renewables depend upon government, yet again. Tesla had massive government subsidies, and you know, mm -hmm. it's like, like that they're open yeah. about it. So if we had the right public incentives, then we'd be able to make more rapid progress, but I couldn't agree with you more that technology is the answer. There is no other answer, really. And uh, I was with Elon Musk, and he was going through the math on solar energy to me, and it was very, very compelling, where he said, look, the sun produces just about all the energy we need, which is common sense, because the yeah. sun is literally like the source of life. But in terms of uh, solar energy and solar energy capture, the real problem is storage. It's like the, mm -hmm. the energy hits the panel and then can you store and transmit the energy where it needs to go. Um, but that technology is getting better all the time. And so if you're looking at sustainable development, to me, uh, solar energy remains, despite all of our progress, the great 
untapped potential energy source and a source of great optimism. So I ask this question to every single guest on the podcast, and it's going to have to be a little bit different for you, but would you ever consider running for political office again? <laughs> That's a funny question. Oh, yeah, I 100% would. You know, uh, I mean, I, I tell people that it sure would be easier the next time around because instead of being uh, an anonymous figure, like now I'm the leader of the Yang Gang and we have like all yeah. this fun stuff and there are all of these tremendous people that uh, supported me and are still excited about our vision. So I would run again for sure. You know, I, I'm going to be dedicating myself to universal basic income, sustainability, fixing our healthcare system, which is a total fiasco in the United States of America, democracy reform. I'm just going to keep driving these goals and I'm going to dedicate myself to whatever path I think is going to be most effective in advancing these goals. So on the basic income front, as an example, and I said before, you know, you need to try and demonstrate through action. My organization, Humanity Forward, has distributed $8 million in economic relief to struggling families during this time because it's one thing to be like, hey, we should give everyone money. And then another thing to be like, look, I'm actually going to collect some money and then give it to people who are struggling. Uh, we have something called a 1K project right now where we're matching any donations to struggling families up to a million dollars. It's incredible that so many people are excited about our ideas that we are getting these donations and being able to help people. We're also, to your point about uh, politics, we're supporting a bunch of down-ballot candidates in New York and around the country who are also aligned with uh, these goals. So I'm fighting all the time and running for office could definitely be in the cards again. What is it like for you personally to be the leader of the Yang Gang? It's a lot of fun. And I was gonna I was gonna make a joke being like, oh, it's so much pressure. The Yang Gang <laughs> always wanting to paint our faces and no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, the Yang Gang is like a delightful, energetic, creative, artistic community. Um, mm -hmm. They continue to amaze and inspire me every day. And I'm also very lucky to have my own little Yang Gang in the form of Evelyn and my two boys. And, you know, I, I certainly feel myself to be incredibly fortunate to have discovered so many people, so many amazing people along the way. I, you know, I, I imagine it's a little bit like you, you and your brothers have all these avid fans uh, and they, they love you and they follow you. It's different for a musician than uh, a, a political figure. But, you know, I'm sure you're grateful every day in the, the same way I'm grateful. Absolutely. I'm grateful for every single one of them. I continuously think about, okay, they're fans of this thing that I put out there that's music and this almost facade and they see one part of my life. And they don't know who I am personally. Most of them have never actually met me as an individual. Is that something that you think about? They're, they're a fan of you and your ideas, but they're not really a fan of you as a person because they don't know you. No, it is a little bit different as a musician. And I love musicians and creatives. It's awesome and human and a lot of courage. Like people don't know. It's like you put this music out there and then if uh, people don't like it, then you feel very, very rejected or dejected. You know, like I, I've written a couple of books and each time you're putting this book out there and, and being like, look, please read it. It's very good and important and valuable. And then if people don't read it, then you're like, oh, like, you know, uh, I'm quite dejected about that. So I had a different experience in the sense that 
Uh, when I was running, I put the ideas out there. But I found that people respond to other people first and foremost. And my campaign really mm. took off when people felt like they got to know me. And there was a struggle around that because I'm a fairly normal person and you like fairly normal people don't necessarily think that their life is going to be you know, played out in public in a particular way. But I, I think that most of the folks that got excited about my campaign actually felt like they did know me. And the, 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 the way that they knew me was more or less accurate. Like I'm pretty much that person. And it's one of the things that I appreciate where people say to me, it's like, look, I came to you because of your policies and your perspective on the future, but I donated and volunteered and the rest of it because now I believe in you. And I think that's something that we have to do with climate change too, Adam, which is that it's clearly compelling and it's going to kill us. And like, you know, there are all, all of these things and there are all these leaders trying to do great things around it. But folks kind of need other humans to connect to and follow. Uh, and so it's one reason why I think what you're doing is so important and your idea around trying to excite folks in a positive way instead of a doom and gloom way. And the doom and gloom is accurate. Like, I don't, you know, I don't blame anyone. Sure. But there are different cues that people respond to. And people do have a way of getting more excited about exciting narratives than ones that are built on fear. I have one last question for you, and it's about getting young people involved. And if people subscribe to this podcast, we plant a tree for every single person who subscribes. Wow, you should definitely subscribe so, then. That's the easiest way to do something positive ever. Absolutely. So aside from that- We need we a lot of so trees. Many, <laughs> we do. Hopefully we get billions of subscribers. Yes, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> um, but aside from that, people don't know how to take the first step to make change in their community. And we get so many young people, many of whom are not old enough to vote yet, asking us, how do I get involved in my community? I'm passionate about so many things. Where should I put my time and energy? How would you answer that question? I love what you said initially about trying to get involved locally in their community. So if there is an org that's doing something positive for the environment in their community directly, that's great. But one thing I will say is get involved in a local race um, where there's a candidate that cares about the climate and sustainability and your issues, because I guarantee you they will be thrilled and you don't even need to be voting age. You're a 15 year old, you show up and volunteer for a city council person's race or mayor's race or a congressional race or whatever it is, they will love you because there are not that many people that show up for those things. And so you can make a huge difference like that. Uh, so find a local candidate that you can be excited about. Any level, school board, doesn't matter. Or it could be all the way up to president. That's cool too. Support Joe and Kamala. But looking locally, if you want to get involved with a local activist or candidate, they will love you and thank you for it. Amazing. I so appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Congratulations to you, man. If you get your PhD, like, uh, I mean, that's a feat. <laughs> I just am so impressed by you. I mean, you're exactly what you <laughs> hope for from someone, you know, like you, you spent all this time on the bus studying and being thoughtful and then thinking, okay, like, what can I do to make a positive difference? We need more like you, man. You're like, you'd be the answer, really. Wow. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please visit sustainablepartnersinc.org slash donate. Also, follow us on Instagram at sustainable.partners. Today's episode was engineered by Drew Allsbrook, produced and edited by Shelby Kaufman, and executive produced by Sustainable Partners, Inc. I'm your host, Adam Met, and thanks for listening to Planet Reimagined.